All right, we are doing now Monday of Vayikra. And we're actually now beginning, of course, in the book of Vayikra, we're beginning discussing the karbanos, the sacrifices. It's a very interesting question that the Lubavitcher Rebbe raises on how these sacrifices are instructed because we begin in the portion of Vayikra discussing the optional ones, the gifts, what's called a karban that's in the dava, a free will offering. You're just freely choosing to give a gift to God. And there are questions that some says, you know, you'd think you'd start with the mandatory ones, the chatas, the asham, which are sin offerings that you have to give. You'd think you'd start with the offerings brought by the community. Those would be take precedence. We don't talk about the community ones for a long time. And before we even speak about the mandatory ones, we'll see about the optional ones. Why? So the Lord explains this on a nigla reason, meaning in the terms of the more literal reading of the text. If we understand what's going on here, these instructions were given as Moshe, as Moses, was already inaugurating the tabernacle during the seven days of inauguration from the 23rd of Adar through the 1st of Nisan. And he was the priest then. Moshe operated as a priest for all those days, though not afterwards. So as Moses, as Moshe was the priest, he knew all the laws. So all the communal offerings that needed to be brought then, he knew exactly how to do them. He knows it. So he didn't yet need to teach it to the other priests, to Aaron, to his brother, to Aaron's sons, because at this time, Moses is running the show also as a priest, and he can do it. What about in terms of the Jews, though, in terms of the offerings they need to bring? Well, the assumption is now we're in this very, very high moment, actually a moment of forgiveness. Everything the Jews are doing now is really to complete the atonement for the sacrilege, the desecration of the sin of the golden calf. So we don't assume many Jews sinning now. That's not the movement at all. But it's very, very probable that just as the Jews were so generous in donating more, probably the only time in history, that, the, that, that when there was a, a, a campaign, a drive, what came in was more. They said, stop, stop, don't give us any more gold. We can't use it. We have more than enough. So obviously that same generosity of spirit will make the Jews want to give now many optional free will gifts to God. So those laws they need to know first. And that's in the nigla, that mind can understand and reveal the dimension of Torah, the reason for specifically the free will offerings, the optional ones, the gifts, being what's recorded first before the mandatory ones for sins. But then on the deeper level, they're going to add something very beautiful. It says, you know, if we study it, the main component, a very major component, after, if it wasn't there, it was actually invalid, was for the Jews to be giving their heart to God. If someone sinned, bought the animal, brought it to the tabernacle, or to the temple, in the times of the temple, and he just sort of went through the motions, there was no forgiveness. He was literally supposed to be feeling, thinking, experiencing, this is me. I'm going through this. So even though it sounds like, oh, you sin, then you bring an animal, then you're forgiven. No, it was actually a very deep 
mental and emotional offering of self that was really what made the carbon, the offering, effective and created that forgiveness. But we don't see this written at all. And we're going to read verse upon verse upon verse upon verse, and we don't mention this very, very primary component of the offering. And therefore, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, we start with the free will offerings. And Rashi's first comment on this whole section is that we're talking about free will offerings. That is this whole Indian, this whole matter. Meaning, we know that if someone says, I want to give God a gift, I'm going to give an animal, which is a huge amount of money, or if I can't afford that, I'm going to give a bird, which for my financial situation is a lot of money. And if I can't afford that, I'm going to give flour, which for my financial situation is a lot of money. I'm, I'm giving God my heart. Because of those, why would I be doing this? This is my pure desire to give God a gift. So my heart's definitely involved. So therefore, that is what the Torah begins with, to allude that just as in the free will offering, your heart's definitely involved, because otherwise you wouldn't be doing this, so too in every other offering we're going to learn, your heart has to be involved. And that was just sort of an introductory thought, but I thought was very beautiful and sort of puts in perspective everything we're going to be learning, because we're going to be learning a lot of very technical laws. And it's important to remember, but when the Jew did this, he did this with his heart. And if he didn't do it with his heart, it was actually invalid. So today's portion, today is Monday. So we're in chapter one of the first Torah portion of the third book, the book of Aikra, the Torah portion of Aikra, chapter one, verse 14. Now, yesterday, on Sunday, we discussed the animals, the various free will offerings of animals. Today, we have the same concept. We're continuing the free will offerings, but it's of birds. And again, as I just mentioned, it's the exact same concept. It's just an animal with a tremendous amount of money. So if someone wanted to give God a gift and didn't have that money, he could give God a bird, which, as Rosh is going to point out, doesn't really smell so great when you're burning it up to God, but God took it and understood it was from this person's heart, and therefore it was very pleasing to God. So verse 14, if one's offering to God is an Ola offering, an Ola offering is an offering that's completely burnt up, which again, as this free will offering, we're saying, God, I'm giving you a gift. I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not eating it. The priests aren't even getting anything out of it. It's purely for you. It's a gift, and therefore it's completely burnt on the altar. An Ola offering from the fowl, he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from the young doves. So Rashi explains. Now, every word here is very precise, and we are extracting many lessons. The sages extracted many lessons, of which Rashi selects the ones that are part of the literal reading of the verse from every nuance of wording here. So the verse says, if from the birds, not if the birds, but from the birds to imply not all birds. Now, why do we need to say that? Because I just learned yesterday that when I'm offering animals, and we discussed there are two levels of animals, cattle and then the flocks, which meant the sheep or the goats. In both of them, there were two requirements. They had to be absolutely perfect. They couldn't have any blemishes, and they had to be male. But I know that those requirements are not on the birds. Birds don't have to be male. Male and female birds could be offered. Birds don't have to be completely perfect. So if so, I could say, hmm, just as I'm dropping the condition of male and I'm dropping the condition of no blemish, 
I could also drop another condition, which is that it could obviously not have a missing limb. I could think also the part of the missing limb I could offer it. No. Therefore, it says from, from to imply an exclusion, from the birds, because if a bird is missing a limb, that disqualifies it. And then we have two types of birds that are being offered, what we translate as turtle doves and young doves. Two different types of birds, actually, from the same family, obviously. But they actually have different time frames. Rashi clarifies the turtle dove has to be the mature ones, not the young ones, as versus the young doves that have to be young ones and not the mature ones. Now, as we're going to learn in the next Rashi, how we know the bird reaches maturity. But why are we assuming these, these exclusions? Well, very interesting. The young doves, it says, the young doves. So I understand there's an exclusion, there's a limitation. They have to be young, not old. Well, if these have to be young, not old, and we're listing two birds in a row, so since this one has a exclusion, and based on its age, the other one also probably needs an exclusion based on its age. So they, because they're they're back to back, they're in a row, so they're in the same category. So the young doves are excluded if they're old. And conversely, the turim, the turtle doves are excluded if they're young. Now, how do I know this exclusion? We don't have a certain number of months or years. So the next Rashi tells us, because again, just like we had in the beginning of this verse, from the birds, which implied an exclusion, we also say here, from the turtle doves or from the young doves. So what is this from excluding? It's excluding in each one the time when they yellow, which the yellowish shine is actually for each bird an expression of the maturity, meaning the animal is progressing in age. Once it's in that yellowish stage, it's invalid. Now again, we have two different age requirements here, so different two different issues. For the turtle doves that could only be offered when they were mature, they could not be offered until after this yellowing process. So during the yellowing process, it's invalid. Anything before the yellowing process was also invalid. And after the yellowing process, then it could be offered. It was a mature turtle dove. Conversely, by the young doves, which clearly the Torah is writing, but they have to be young. Remember, we said the yellowing is when it shows a maturation. So they can be offered until the yellowing process. Once they start getting that yellowish tint that shows they're maturing, ah, we can't offer them anymore. So from, for each of them is applying the exclusion, the same exclusion, the exclusion of the yellowing, but by the turtle doves, which we only offer after they're mature, once we finish the yellowing, then we offer them. And by the young doves, which you only offer when they're young, once it begins the yellowing, we can no longer offer them. And again, we derive both of this from the word from, which is implying an exclusion. Next verse. The priest shall bring it to the altar, and he shall pour, perform mulika, which will explain what that means, and cause it to go up in smoke on the altar, and its blood shall be squeezed out against the side of the walls of the altar. So, the verse says, he shall bring it. And Rashi explains that's written very specifically because in the previous verse, we spoke about two birds, the turtle dove and the young dove. So you could think, okay, if I'm offering a bird to God, I have to bring two. 
So therefore we're saying specifically, not just he should bring, but we have, so to speak, this unnecessary word, which in Hebrew is exactly one letter, but every letter is significant, it, to show no, even if it's just an it, if it's one word, God will take it from you. So he shall bring it and he shall pour malika. Now here also we have an extra word. It says that the priest should bring it to the to the altar and he should perform this malika, this severing of its neck. Now, the word priest is also unnecessary. We could have said the pronoun he. Why? Because we're talking about on the altar, and the only one's allowed to go on the altar is a priest. So since only the priest is allowed on the altar, obviously it's a priest. So why do I have the unnecessary word priest? So based on this, Rashi says, we're showing that the malika is performed by the very being of the priest. No implements here. No tools. So with his fingernail, he cuts at the bird's nape and severs its backbone until he's reaching the esophagus and the trachea, and he cuts them. And that is how the bird is ritually slaughtered for this offering. That's not how we have to kill birds generally at all. That's not how birds are killed. They've never watched by kaparos or something like that. But on the altar, that was how it was done. And its blood is squeezed out against the wall of the altar. Rashi gives you two verses from which he derives that the word vinimta, the Hebrew word, means to squeeze, to extract. And the priest is placing it, that opening caused by his malika, by his fingernail cutting through the nape of its neck, against the wall of the altar, and the blood is squeezed and run down the side of the wall. I'm not going to go into it now, but there's a very, very interesting talk of the Rebbe explaining this whole concept, both literally and spiritually. Continuing to the next Rashi, if you look at the order of this verse, it doesn't work. Because we're told three things that can't possibly follow each other. First, he performs the malika, which means, again, he's severing it at the nape of its neck. That's the slaughtering of it. And then he causes it to go up in smoke. And then its blood is squeezed out. Well, obviously, if he causes it to go up in smoke, there's no more bird to uh, squeeze the blood against the side of the altar. So obviously, between the malika, the ritual slaughtering, and the making it smoke, in between, there had to be this blood being squeezed out. So Rashi gives two answers to that. Rashi says, that we're, we're being taught something here, that just like when it was put to smoke, the head and the body were separate, the head was completely detached from the body, and so too by the malika. That's one way of understanding why this is not in order. The simple understanding, and what she says, more simply you can say that the verse is saying he should do the malika, he should burn it, he should cause it to smoke on the altar, and before that, its blood has already been squeezed out. Next verse. He should remove its crop with its notzasa, which actually Rashi gives certain explanations of what that means. Generally, it's translated as its innards. And he should throw it to the next to the altar on the east to the place of the ashes. So the crop, which is the place where the food is sort of partially digested in a bird, that part is not offered up to God. And with that part is notasa, which either, there's two ways Rashi explains it, either it's the gizzard or it means the feathers, meaning that very place 
the, there's sort of a, a window made to pull out the crop and right where you're cutting the skin of the bird to pull out the crop, also the feathers and the skin there is burnt, is not burnt actually, is taken with the crop and that's what we mean by notasa, like notasa means a feather. And then we take that and we do not offer it to God, we toss it away. Now why? Very interesting because if you think this whole thing, you know, by the by the animal, we burn the whole thing for God, every bit. But by the bird, which is small enough to start with, we're cutting out its crop and maybe the gizzard or part of the skin. Why are we doing this? And, you know, what, you know we think, what does all this have to do with me? You know? <laughs> it's not, and isn't, isn't where we like to go, thinking of, you know, these animals being dissected here. But it's a very beautiful point Rashi makes. The animals are not wild. They're all domesticated animals. Either it was a cattle or a sheep or a goat. So they were fed by their owner. So they only ate permissible food for them, non-stolen. And therefore, every part of them, even these parts that are digesting the food, is something they can give to God. But the birds, generally, they, they eat what they can get anywhere. And therefore, in essence, they're stealing. Very often, they're stealing. So therefore, if they're stealing that part, the crop of the animal, which is where this sort of partially digested food is contained, so therefore we still have the food not yet completely absolved into the body of the bird, but actually still as semi-food particles, because in the crop the food is still not completely digested. No, God said, that I don't want. Food that was stolen, don't offer that to me as a gift which is a really powerful lesson for us just in terms of everything, how we relate to God and how God only wants us to give him things that are pure, that are moral, just like if someone desecrated the Sabbath and earned money thereby, don't give it to charity. God says, no, uh-uh, don't, don't give me that. I'm not interested in that. That's stolen money. Don't pretend you can make it holy by giving me a gift. There's no Robin Hood in Judaism. No, if it's stolen, it's taboo. So even here with the bird, which is so small to start with, and we want to make the poor person feel good, and that's why we're even going to burn his feathers, which normally would stink. But we're saying, no, that's a beautiful smell because we want to make your, your offering as big as possible, but not the crop. The crop has this partially digested, stolen food. No, God says that. Don't give me. So it was thrown to the east of the ramp of the altar to the place of the ashes, where Rashi points out very interesting that there they would put every morning the ashes from the altar, the ashes from the inner altar, the ashes from the menorah, from the candelabra, and they were also miraculously swallowed up there in that place along with this crop and either feathers or gizzards from the bird. 